from the famous flying Wallanda family. What's wrong with you people? You'll know him in a minute because Nick Wallanda, if you come from a family called the Flying Wallandas and you're a seventh generation Flying Wallanda, then you're bound to be someone who does unusual things like perhaps be an aerialist or maybe walk on high wires across Niagara Falls or Little Colorado River in the Grand Canyon. Two years ago on Discover Channel, Nick Wallanda went across the Little Colorado River on a gigantic wire that was two inches wide, wearing blue jeans. And you think, isn't there some kind of special pant you wear for a situation like this? He was wearing blue jeans. On a 10-second delay, (laughs) I don't know what that was for, He went 1,500 feet across, and if there are any Brits here, that's 460 meters. 1,400 feet high above the raging river. Fierce winds, which he tried to prepare for and approximate as many ways as he could in his training, coming up from the gorge. And if you'll notice, if you happen to see this, this man, it took him 22 minutes That's not too long to be suspended 1,400 feet over ground, over a river, over your death, is it? With two inches to support you. But he had this pole, a 30-foot-long pole. And when the winds came or he got a little bit off balance, he would use the pole. The pole makes it easy. I could have done it with a pole. I was sitting there the whole time saying, yeah, drop the pole if you want us to think you mean it. No, it was a spectacular feat. So he has this 30-foot pole, and my hands are sweating the entire time, because why wouldn't they be? Because I wasn't on the two-inch wire. But he has this pole, and this pole is what allowed him to walk without falling when fierce winds tried to knock him over, when he was about to be toppled, when he loses footing for a minute. The pole would help him to balance. He'd go a little bit to the left. He'd go a little bit to the right. And I think about that man when I think about what we've been preaching on, we're coming to a close in this series on did Jesus really say, and we're looking at the kinds of statements that Jesus has made in the Gospels that one, we may not be familiar with, and two, they might cut across the grain of how we think life should go. And so it might sort of rub a blister on our lives, as I said earlier. It might create a certain kind of discomfort. We might be tempted to write him off and say he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or we might take these words and say, oh my goodness, he might know something that I need to hear. And in this, Matthew chapter 7, at the end of what has been called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has said a lot of encouraging things, and he's done a lot of ethical teaching, he ends with warnings. Warnings that are meant to make his hearers squirm. That's part of how you can tell you're taking him seriously sometimes is because you're squirming. Because you're starting to say, uh-oh, what, uh, what, what if he's talking to me? What if I need to hear this? And so before we get into this treachery, see these, these warnings enter through the narrow gate. 
for wide is the gate and broad is the road. You know, everybody, most people, are on the path to perdition, he says. They're walking through a great big door. It's going to go over, and it's going to drop into the little Colorado River. That's what he says. He's talking about destruction. So here, here's a little sermon about the broad path to destruction. Now, head on down to Mojo Burrito and get yourself some 99-cent tacos. Then he says, watch out for false prophets. And he goes and he says, if they don't bear good fruit, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit, their branches get cut off and then they're, they're thrown into the fire. So enjoy your Mediterranean salad at Tzatziki's. And then he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. There are going to be some who did these amazing feats of service in my name. And I'm going to say, away from me. You're shut out from the heart of things for the rest of forever. Head on out to Morrison's for a cafeteria lunch. That's not even open anymore, is it? In my 1983. We went to Morrison's. Piccadilly? No. Jesus says some things that should make you squirm a little bit. That's why I added on a joke at the end to make you know, so you wouldn't walk out immediately. But when you hear Jesus say threatening things, which he does, I urge you, for instance, if you haven't done it, read the Gospels. Read one of them. Read things that Jesus has said. The Gospels record the life of Jesus while he was on the earth. One of the things you'll note is, is many people, everybody admires Jesus until they actually hear some things he says. And you... If you read them carefully, you'll start to realize, wow, Jesus is kind of mean. He's kind of severe. He's a little stern. That's not all he is. He's also very tender. He's very sweet. He's very welcoming. He's very merciful. He's very inviting. But sometimes he can scare the, well, he can scare you. So I wanted to say things. Because we're talking about being on this narrow path, like a two-inch wire. Jesus is saying, go through this. This little narrow gate on this little narrow path that's difficult, that not many people are choosing, but it's the path to life. And as you're on this narrow thing and you're listening to hard things that Jesus says, I think there are two principles, two counterweights, a 30-foot pole that can balance us as you walk through the Gospels, as you walk through your Christian life, as you walk through things Jesus says. And they are these. On the one side, if you start to tilt it this way, you've got to realize this. Jesus will say and do. Anything, no matter the cost to him or you, in order to reclaim what's precious to him, namely you. That is a complicated sentence. Jesus will say or do anything, regardless of the cost to him or to you, in order to reclaim what is precious to him. Anybody who's a parent, anybody who's a dear, dear friend to another, every, anybody who's any, ever loved somebody fiercely knows exactly what I'm talking about. If you care about getting somebody back, if you've got a rebel daughter who's run off, who's run off with her hand out the window with an extended middle finger, it doesn't matter because you want her back. She's your daughter. That's why Jesus says all of heaven rejoices when one measly old, run-of-the-mill sinner like any one of us, says, God, I'm sorry. Will you take me back? And heaven has a celebration that embarrasses Fourth of July celebrations.
He will say or do anything, no matter the cost, to him or to you, in order to reclaim what is precious to him. That's one side. When you're listening to Jesus talk, when he says something harsh, you've got to have that ringing in your ear. You remember he's offering life. He's trying to help you avoid destruction because he wants you back. That can write you up. Get your balance again. And the other thing is this. The other principle, the other side of the weight, the balance you, is this. Jesus rarely, if ever, issues a threat that he hopes to carry out. Jesus rarely, if ever, issues a threat that he hopes to carry out. I have a mission from God, I think, like the Blues Brothers. It won't be as cool. But I would like to single-handedly, if I could, in this, this metropolis in which I've been placed to preach, the hordes of thousands and thousands affecting public policy in the land and all, to counterweight some bad teaching about prophecy in the land. Everywhere you go, if you turn on the TV, you hear preachers preaching about prophecy. One of the main things about prophecy in the Bible, when Jesus talks about on that last day, when people come to me and they say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to kick them away, that's in a sense a prophecy. The Bible's filled with prophecies. Prophecies are not necessarily aimed to tell you what the future is. That's a big misunderstanding. A lot of people read prophecies and they think, hey, look, this Iranian deal, we're about to, this mistake we're about to make, or this magnificent thing we're about to do, depending on your political ideology. That corresponds to what they say in Joel chapter 4. No, it doesn't. Jesus didn't do that. They didn't, the Bible's not there. These prophecies are not there just to predict the future. You know what they're there to do? They're there to urge people to listen up to God and to amend their ways so they don't get the punishment. So they don't have to have the threat carried out on them. So many things work that way. That's why in one place... In the Gospels, Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, and they say, hey, just give us a sign and we'll believe you. That's something, people say that kind of stuff all the time. And Jesus said, I'm not going to give you a sign unless you want the sign of Jonah. I'll be three days in the earth, and then I'll be up again. It's a pretty cool sign, resurrection. You know, not many people do that. And he says, but you know what's going to happen? At the final judgment, the men of Nineveh, that ruthless capital city of the Assyrians and all their technological advancement and all their military might, all their shrewdness and superpowerness as a nation in the ancient Near East, the men of Nineveh are going to stand up at the final judgment and they are going to condemn you, Israel, people of God. You know why? Because when they heard a threat from God, 40 more days and the atomic bombs going off in your city, the king said, Oh my gosh, what if God is serious? Nobody feed your cows. Put your bottled water away. Put your BPA-free water bottles in the back of the car. No water. No food. Tell Whole Foods later. 40 days, we're fasting. Maybe God will have mercy. Maybe a big rain cloud of his mercy will come and he won't do what he said. And God said, that's what I wanted. Great. It's fantastic. I know I've told you this before, but I want you to have it ringing in your head when Jesus says something hard. He doesn't hope to carry out these threats. He's telling it because he wants you to be stunned into action. 
stunned into attentiveness, stunned into a weakness before God who will say or do anything, no matter the cost to you or to him, to reclaim what is precious to him. And he rarely, if ever, issues a threat that he hopes to carry out. He will carry them out. I'm not saying these judgments don't come true. I'm not saying these prophecies aren't realized. But God can change his mind if we change our hearts. So all that's free. Here's the sermon. This is the part you're paying for. But you're you're not paying for anything. Okay. So then Jesus says, Enter the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate. And narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. When you read this, I want you just to think about this. What's a reliable path for me? It's a good question for your life, whether you're a new college student, and we're glad to have you college students here. We always count on you to come and and, and build up our coffers. It's a joke. We love having college students here. I'm so thrilled when you come back. You add such verve and vitality to our midst, and we love, we love having you here and welcoming you into our midst, and we're really glad. Whether you're a visitor, whether you're a college student, whether you're 72 years old or whether you're 12, a question to ask yourself, am I on a reliable path? Jesus is urging us to see here, one, there are really only two paths you can be on. You can be on this broad path that everybody's on, which is essentially doing whatever you want, being led along by your own nose. It has different iterations. It's very broad. There are different expressions on the broad path, but everybody's on a path. And he says this narrow path, much fewer people on it, because this is the path that we'll find out of people who aren't being led along by their noses anymore. They say, what do I know about leading myself? I'll be led by Jesus Christ and him alone, which is a little bit harder because, you know, his will and yours don't always intersect in pleasant in accommodating ways. But you ask, What's a, what, am I on a reliable path? And if you realize that, if you're on a path, it means you're headed somewhere. It means you're, you should be realizing you're somewhat on a search of sorts. This is a theme in Walker Percy's writing. In the moviegoer, 1954 National Book Award winner, Binks Bowling, at the beginning of the book, early on says this. He talks about being on a search. He says, what's the nature of the search, you ask? Well, the search is what anybody would be on if they weren't so sunk down in the everydayness of their lives. To not be on a search is to be in despair. He's at least waking up in this book called The Moviegoer. He's waking up to the idea that even though 98% of Americans claim to believe in God, he thinks, am I way out ahead of them or way behind them? Have they already found something that I've not or have they not actually found it? I'm on a search. And Jesus wants you to realize by using this idea of the path, the psalmist uses it too. The Bible is always using this. There's two paths. In the Bible, there is a moral, there's a moral minority, not a moral majority. In the Bible, wickedness is the majority. Minority is morality. Follows Jesus. He says anybody would be on this search if they were not so sunk down in the everydayness of their lives. That's one of the things Jesus is hoping to do here. 
I read Douglas Copeland, who's a kind of snarky Gen X writer, and he said, he said, anytime one of your friends tells you that they just bought a house, here's what you can assume about them. You can assume that they're both stuck in jobs that they hate, that they're broke, that they're 15 pounds overweight, and they spend their nights watching movies. Is that cynical? If anybody tells you they bought a house, that's what you can assume. They're stuck in jobs that they hate, they're 15 pounds overweight, they're broke, and they spend their night watching movies. He's at least getting to the idea that what can happen in the midst of your domesticity, which I think God likes domesticity, but in the midst of your everydayness, in the midst of your working, your coming and your going, and your filing taxes and purchasing things and selling things and, and cooking lasagna, that people cook lasagna, right? Stouffer's has, doesn't have a corner on the whole market, right? Some people still cook it, bake it, I don't know. You can get so sunk down in this everydayness that you forget, why am I here? Who am I listening to? Well, who's directing me? What am, what am I doing? And Jesus, you know what Jesus is trying to do when he's talking about these two paths and entering a narrow gate and one leads to destruction and one leads to life? He's trying to do what I discovered as a young boy on one unattended Saturday morning as a child in East Ridge. East Ridge part is insignificant to the story, but I just it's local color. But here's what happened. You know, they say that Ben Franklin had discovered electricity, but I'm pretty sure that I did that morning because I was probably toasting a Pop-Tart or maybe a toast, but I had a toaster work in there. I had something in it that was supposed to be in it, but I also had a fork. Children, this is awful. Do not ever do this. I'm serious. I joke a lot. I'm not joking now. Do not ever do this. It's awful. But I thought to myself... Well, the Pop-Tart in there, it should be in there. What would happen if you put a fork in there? Let me tell you what happens when you put a fork in there. Woo! You feel alive! (laughs) I felt like somebody came up behind me and shocked me. It was very shocking. Thank you. Good. It was shocking. But boy, was I awake. My heart was racing. I was going, what happened? I was shaking a little bit, but I was alert. I had hyper attentiveness to my surroundings. I could hear conversations 20 houses away. (laughs) I think that's what Jesus is trying to do when he says these threatening things. He's trying to jolt you awake. Like, don't get sunk down in your everydayness so much that you forget you were created for God and by God. Robert Ferrar Capone in one place says, mouthing off Jesus, I died for you and you were so concerned about your stupid little life that you didn't even notice. Making plans for our stupid little lives, making aspirations to restore the American dream. And you forget that Jesus Christ says, I'm the gate. You want life? You got to come through me. It won't involve a Lexus. You might get a Lexus, but that's not where the life is. And I am 14 years old. Did you hear the crack? But at least I only partially still look sick. He's trying to wake you up. 
He's trying to wake you up, and he's trying to help you. Because you see what happens. When you're going on a narrow path, if you've ever been to Rock City, if you're a college student and you've never been there, you need to go sometime. We go with the mountain pass at the Enchanted Garden of Lights. So it doesn't cost us $722. And when we go through there, there's, it's so beautiful. You know, oh, look at the lovely lights. And it's so, it's so peaceful, and it's this shalomy kind of feeling. And then there's this one area at the beginning that my children think was named for me. The Big E Squeeze. The fat man squeeze, they call it. They get a great kick out of this. But see, when you're my size, when you're men generously proportioned, you know, big boned, and you walk to the fat man squeeze, it's no joking matter. It's not like my normal frolicking and skipping and cartwheeling that I always do. This time, you have to pay attention. You might even have to do a lot of that business and the kids think it's hilarious because they just run through there in their little felt live bodies that have zero percent body fat i was once there but i don't do any running there's no liveness it's and it's attentiveness i don't want my head to get stuck in between two rocks or any other part of me it's a narrow way and it requires great care and it requires great attentiveness and i have to watch my step I have to be awake to what I'm doing. And so if you start to realize, wait, if I'm listening to Jesus and he says, I'm the gate, I've got to come through Jesus. I've got to pay attention to him. I have to carefully start to order my life around him. He's the gate I've got to walk through. And in this narrow path, I'm going to walk alongside him. He's already walked it, you know. We're walking alongside these other believers who have done the same thing. And it's going to be a careful path. It's going to be a path that's going to urge me to look at, for instance, my desires. Because the broad path says, if you have desires, please, whatever you do, obey them, because they are your God. Men are not made to be monogamous. That's a good narrative that's going along now. Your body is your own. It's important to make sure you look good without being good. Social media lets you do that. It's a woman's body. She can do whatever she wants with it. It doesn't matter if there's another life in it. You can do whatever you want with your body because your body, it's your body. The second person's singular pronoun, your, is the most important one there is. And Jesus says, no, 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 not on the narrow way. The narrow way, the most important pronoun is his. His. Third person singular. Possessive. I know my grammar. And he wants you to pay attention to your desires. G.K. Chesterton is wrongly attributed with saying something that someone did say in the 1945s in a similar kind of book, like the Father Brown Mysteries. It was another priest. But he said something like this, every man who walks into a brothel is looking for God. And none of you know what a brothel is, except those of you who are a little bit older. And so we could say, every man who, who signs up and clicks on Ashley Madison, which is apparently a bunch of dudes talking to robots, every dude who clicks on Ashley Madison is looking for God. What? What he's saying is like Augustine realized. Augustine, 5th century bishop of Hippo in North Africa, great church father of Western civilization, Before he was converted, he said, my parents' only goal for me was that I had a fertile tongue, that I could persuade people to do things. He studied rhetoric. And he said, when they sent me to Carthage for three years, 
My mother's only advice to me was, avoid sexual immorality and don't mess with another man's wife. And he said, but when I got to Carthage, I discovered a burning cauldron of lust. And he said, that was his lifelong struggle of desire. And he said, my hunger, O God, was for you, the bread of the soul, but I knew it not. See, what wise men and women throughout the ages have realized is that these strong hungers you have to be acclaimed on the interwebs, to be applauded for your life, to be accepted, to be cared for, to be welcomed in, to be fulfilled, to be intimate. These desires, they can all be fulfilled in good ways under God's parameters, but they're all meant as breadcrumbs to lead you to God who says, I caused you to hunger that I may feed you. Jesus says, I'm a narrow gate, but when you open up, there's an inexhaustible supply of nourishing life for you. Are you on that reliable path? Are you awake? Are you realizing that Jesus says that because he's going to say anything he can at any cost to himself or you to get back what is precious to him, which is you? And he doesn't issue threats that he hopes to keep. He issues them hoping he won't have to. Who's a reliable guide? He talks about these false prophets. He talks about teachers who say things that sound good, but they're not his words. He says you can tell if they're for real if their lips and their lives match. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. You don't find situations where an apple tree is going to produce a pineapple, for instance, even though they both have apple in the name. That's not in the Greek. It's an extrapolation. See, what Jesus is saying, in essence, I'm going to boil this down. He says it in other places, too. What happens when you enter into this narrow gate of Jesus? When you give yourself to God, you're, it's, a, it's, it's what conversion is. Theologians call it conversion. You, you look in faith to Jesus. You say, I want to follow you. You're going to be my Lord. And you repent. You turn around. You say, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to be the main voice in my life anymore. You're going to be the main voice in my life. Will you please be Lord and will you please be Savior? You say that. But then the Christian who's walking along this path the whole rest of his life and her life is continuing to this kind of path of conversion, which is, as Packer would say, offering as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. Because what you know of yourself is always changing, I hope. And what you know of God, if you're a believer, is always changing. You're always learning more about him if you know him. And so what you're continually doing is day after day after day is you're offering yourself to him. And you might even do it like Fenelon, the great spiritual writer, who said, Lord, take my heart because I don't know how to give it to you. But you're acquainted enough with him to know that if any kind of good's going to come in, you've got to have a new, you've got to have a new operating system within. You've got to have a new heart inside. You've got to have a new spirit within you. Otherwise, you're sunk. And just obeying yourself, which is a dead end of destruction, we're told. You need a heart transplant, which is what he says he'll give you. And all, a lot of you already have that. His spirit's living in you, moving you to walk in his ways. You've got to cultivate that by prayer, by the scriptures, by being together, by worship, by obedience. Cultivate these things. And what's going to happen, he's saying, it's kind of like our friend. Some of you have been praying for my, my dear friend, uh, his son, Jack, who had a 
heart transplant. A heart transplant. Took out his old heart, put in a new heart. And after about a month of this, this little boy who'd never been able to do little boy stuff, he's always been sick, he's always been in the hospital, he's always had surgeries. And I saw this picture on, on, on uh, Facebook, or somebody emailed it to me or something, this video, rather, where Jack with his new heart, and they're trying to get him around walking, he says, Mom, I'm going to go around the nurse's station, around this block of the ner- hospital wing, time me. And so he's there in his, ner- in his gown. He's hooked up, IV, ch- ch- wires coming out of him like he's a robot. His nurse is behind him holding the IV stand. And then you hear, you got Survivor working, Eye of the Tiger in the back. And you see Jack doing what little boys do when they're working right. He's moving. He's trying. He can't. He's going slow, but it's, it moves you. It melts you. It warms you. It thrills you. You see this little boy trying with all his might to make it fast because boys are like little puppies. They're in constant motion when their hearts are working right. And he got a new heart, and he wanted to be in motion. The first thing he wanted to do was see how fast he could go. See, that's what happens when you get a new heart. You see, you do the things that image bearers are supposed to do. When God puts his heart in you, you want to do stuff that God wants. You want to please him. You start finding yourself thinking, huh, I don't know that I want to do that anymore. I'm not so sure that's right. What does God think about that? Am I going crazy? You find yourself wanting to do what God wants. You become a good tree. You're becoming a good tree. That doesn't mean you always produce good. You're becoming a good tree. You want to look for reliable guides whose lips and their lives are matching and people who have this new heart and they're pushing you towards what Jesus says. And the last thing is this, how can I know I'm reliably on the path? Because <sighs> Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Which makes it sound a lot like he's saying the only people who are going to enter into the kingdom of heaven are the people that do the will of my Father in heaven because he says... Only the people who do the will of my Father in heaven are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, I just said it three times in hopes that you heard it. But we also know, we've been told, we've been, we're saved by grace and not by anything we do. We're saved by trusting the completed work of Jesus Christ for us on the cross, right? And it reminds me. It reminds me of raising Arizona. Now, if your spiritual life is stunted, it's probably because you haven't seen raising Arizona. But there's a great scene in there where Gail and Ethel, these jailbirds have broken out of jail. They're going to they're gonna rob the local credit union, a hayseed credit union, a farmer's credit union. And these guys are coming in, to, the farmers are coming in to cash their subsidy checks on this particular day. And they bust into the credit union there. And they say, all right, everybody, this is a holdup. Everybody freeze. Everybody on the ground. And there's an old man sitting there with a big beard, and he's just stuck. And they said, I said, everybody on the ground. He said, well, which is it there, young fella? You wanting that we should freeze? Or are you wanting that we should get down on the ground? Because if and I freeze, I can't likely get down on the ground. And if I get down on the ground, why, then I'm going to be in motion. And I can't freeze. And so Ethel amends his command and says, forget all that about freezing and everybody get down on the ground. At which point... They panic. Where are the tellers? And they say, we're down here, sir. They're on the ground. They can't see them. 
But I always like that. Which is it, young fellow? And it makes me wonder, what's Jesus talking about here? Which is it, young fellow? Are we saved by grace? Are we saved by doing the will of our Father in heaven? Are we saved by trusting Jesus alone? Or are we saved by doing the will of God? I think the answer must be yes. Because I'm not sure Jesus makes the same kind of distinctions that we want to make all the time. I think he's just assuming something. Like I just said, when you... Trust him, you get a new heart. When you surrender your will to him, you get a new heart. When you say, you know what? You're going to be king now, not me. You get a new life. You get a new spirit in you. And all of a sudden, you start asking, what good can I do? You want to do good things. But one of the problems that a lot of us have is this. And C.S. Lewis says this, and our own Pope Tim Keller says the same. How... A lot of us wonder this. We're trying to do the Christian thing to some extent. I want the power that Christians have. I want the community that they have. I want that. They have this, those people, they have this kind of glow and this kind of kindness and they do so much good and it's, it's so warm. It feels so happy to be there. I want that. But I'm not quite sure I want to relinquish control entirely because there might come a time in a meeting where I don't want to necessarily tell the truth and I don't want Jesus to be telling me how I need to conduct myself in a meeting. I don't want Jesus to tell me how I need to, to treat my roommate, or who I can sleep with or not sleep with. So I kind of like to just reserve that for myself. And he says, here's the thing. You can't say, I want to uh, uh, be happy in Jesus and stay in control of my life. They just, you can't, they can't work. And so one definition of a Christian is somebody who just gives up their will entirely. They say, Jesus, and it's an ongoing thing. Take my will. And you might even have to say, take it because I, I give it reluctantly. I'm, I'm trying to squeeze onto it because I want to do what I want, but I also want to do what you want. Help me here. You offer it up to him. These people who point to what they've done, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons and heal the sick? And Jesus says, I never knew you. We weren't connected. You didn't let me into the center of your life. And contrast that with the story he tells to some who were confident in their own righteousness. And they looked down on everybody else. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a person who looked so religious, who looked like a Lord, Lord kind of guy. And he said, God, I cannot believe and I commend you favorably for the excellent, impeccable work that you did in forming me. A stalwart, really, of righteousness. I cannot even believe how good I am, especially compared to all these yahoos. And he's, you know, he waits there for God to pat him on the head and give him his signing bonus. And then we're told that an ambulance-chasing lawyer comes up. And he says, on his knees, eyes averted because he can't look God in the face, and he beats his chest and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. You know who went home right with God? Had God smiling? The one who went home thinking, I'm toast. See, these guys at the end, Jesus said, in the last day, where Jesus envisions to be. It's important. In this last day, they say, Lord, look what we did. We did this, we did this, we did this, we did this. You know what the publican said, the tax collector said? He said, they're saying, look at what we did. And he's saying, please don't look at what I did. Please don't look at what I did. When you start to hide yourself in Christ, when you go through this narrow gate, and you say, I want you to be my everything, Lord, you start to be able to hide yourself. He's not asking for perfection and following his will. He's asking that to be 
the way you, ad- you adopt his ways on the earth. You become a humble person who's asking, how do I follow God? How do I make sense out of this tragedy? How do I make sense out of my suffering, out of my deprivation? God's will must be at work here, and I've got to figure it out. I've got to surrender to it. I've got to submit to it. I want my future, but God's got a better future. But it might not feel so better at the time. You can't be a Christian and keep control of your own will. It's impossible. But Jesus invites you to give up that will. And I close with this. I'll edit it down. In one of the Narnian tales, Jill Pohl is out with Eustace Scrugg, and if you hate your kid, name him that. They get separated in the woods, and she is dying of thirst, and she comes, and you've heard this before, she comes upon a stream, a river, that's so crystal clear, and seeing it makes her ten times thirstier. The only problem is there's a giant lion in front of it. She stands there frozen for a moment, and hears, you may drink. I'm not going to do Liam Neeson right now. You may drink. She wonders, where's the voice come from? She's paralyzed. She's feeling thrill and terror at the same time. And then she realizes it's the lion talking. If, aren't you thirsty? And she says, yes, I'm dying of thirst. And her thirst continues to, to bubble up. And just seeing the water, she's getting frantic. Then you may come and drink. And she says, do you think you can uh, move over there? You mind just getting out of the way a little bit, you know, because you're a lion? That's editorializing there. It's not in the text. Can you move over just a little bit? And he just goes, you know, you low growl. He says, don't you want to come and drink? She says, do you promise you won't hurt me or do anything to me? And he says, I make no such promise then I think I'll just not get a drink. And he says, well, then you'll die of thirst. You'll die of thirst. And so she screws up her courage and starts to walk towards this terrifying and thrilling lion who stands in front of the most refreshing, tasty, renewing water she's ever been around. And she dips her hand in and gets a drink and feels renewed. There is, Jesus would say, no other stream. You want life for the first time or over and over again? You got to keep going through the narrow gate. You got to keep balancing everything you hear Jesus say with this knowledge that he will say and do anything he has to at whatever cost to you or to him to reclaim what is precious to him because he has a renewed world to come to offer to anyone who will accept it, who will surrender to his will. And he issues threats so that he won't have to make them come true. Will you listen? Will you balance your life with those truths? Will you realize you're in a search? 
Will you come to the stream? The stream guarded and opened up by Jesus because there is no other. Amen.